Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of DC Power Hour. We've got the Battery Blarney Duo back in the house, along with our good friend Andrew Charlton, to basically pick up where we left off on the last episode and, and continue the conversation that we started. And, and I know there was a lot more that we, we had to talk about, and so that's what we're going to do today. It's kind of part two of the where we've been and, and where we're headed in the uh, DC power industry. So welcome back, gentlemen. Great to see you. Who wants to get things started? Uh, I guess I will, but uh, I think we broke off the last conversation. We started to talk about standards, evolving standards. And maybe I should let uh, George talk about that since George was at the last IEEE meeting, which I unfortunately missed. So George, do you want to start us off and talk about standards a little bit? Well, you're actually probably the more more up to date with that. Yes, I was at the last meeting, but between a combination of uh, conference calls with Milwaukee and attending the sessions I had to, I didn't get to to some of the standards ones that I would have liked to. But there's a lot. It's just to put it into focus. There's a lot going on with standards at the present moment, in particular about the batteries themselves. There's a number of safety standards, a number of testing, like the number straight off at you. There's a lot of work being done on that. There's some a UL standard coming out on batteries. It's all it's all geared towards um, testing them before you know, having the, the the design tested effectively, and from a safety point of view, because of the the problems we've seen with the lithium batteries, for instance, one we're well aware of in this podcast, all, all about the the potential for fire and what the regulation or what the requirements are. So there's a lot of work being done there, but then I don't think we've actually started, well, we, we have in a sense, because we've been working on uh, a set of guides for the uh, the new technologies. But that's that's where I see the next set of, um, from a IEEE point of view at least, will be, there'll be a new set of guides and uh, probably on to recommended practices because the effectively, as we add these new technologies in here, whether they're being zinc-based or lithium or sodium, all, all the different ones, they all need a slightly different charging regime. And what the battery manufacturers themselves are looking for are much more intelligent chargers. So we can definitely, with no doubt about that, we will see some new guides and then recommended practices with respect to that to at least give the uh, the battery charger manufacturers some guidance, because that's one of their uh, their biggest challenges at the present moment, the cost of developing a new product, and then to find out that that particular manufacturer, who everybody thought was going to be the dominant one, went out of business and um, they're left with a product that doesn't match what MD else's is. So we really need to get some standardization at that point. What's your thoughts on that one, Alan? I agree with you. For years and years, we've we had basically two different types of stationary batteries. That was lead acid based and uh, nickel cadmium. And now all of a sudden, over a f- period of a few short years, all these other technologies are coming out and they're, they're looking at the IEEE uh, to write you know, standards for them. Various you know, standards, whether it be testing or whether it be installation or maintenance or whatever. But uh, th- things are happening very fast. And as you well know, the, the IEEE only meets face-to-face or post-COVID, that is, you know, twice a year. So they're having to do a lot of work offline. And I, and I feel that the IEEE, basically I was going to say Power Engineering Society, but then that's changed so many times, but now it's the ESSB, Energy Storage and Stationary Battery Committee. I feel it's being overburdened at the moment for everybody asking for a standard for you know, this, that, and the other technologies. A lot of these new chemistries haven't really made their way into the uh, 
the telecom space or the utility space or they're starting off with the UPS, you know, seem to be targeting the UPS industry because probably that's a sweet spot for a, a lot of the uh, technologies they're coming out with. So IEEE is having a hard time to keep pace with it. And Andrew, I'm wondering if uh, you're seeing anything on the field there, uh, your customers or people you visit, uh, are they asking about standards or are they groping for information? So would you like to comment on that, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when it comes to standards, customers are directly reaching out to us on specific standards. You guys have kind of named a few of them and talked about them over the, the past couple of episodes. But a lot of customers are heavily being driven towards full compliance. But also one aspect that I'm seeing more now of is complete understanding of what those mean, what, what each one of those standards mean, not only for how to be in compliance, but also how to train their associated employees and personnel on making sure that they're doing all the right things, making sure that they're filing the information correctly. And then what do those standards actually mean from like a behavioral standpoint for their different employees and personnel as well? So I, I think, you know, even some of the training that we're offering at our uh, sister company, Eli University is really starting to be geared towards that, but also just how we're interacting with clients when it comes to the different standards that we, we're actively engaged in. Yeah, that, you, you, you're absolutely correct there, Andrew. As you said, the types of courses we're being asked for now are much more related to how do people comply? What's the method of complying? And um, part of the trouble is that there's because there is so much of this, these new ideas, and so much of it is often hype within the media and other places that um, the customers just don't know where to start. So they're looking towards the vendors to provide them the correct answers, but then the vendor tends to be somewhat biased to their own technology. So it's people like us that are, in fact, system integrators rather than a, a specific vendor for certain products. We're being sort of challenged with the uh, trying to help them out and it's um is the way it's going to go i think but it's how how do we adjust the industry to uh, to make it happen uh, what i think people forget sometimes is is uh, the use of the word term standards uh, standards really should be something mandated by law uh, like the national electric code or in the case of the utilities you know, PRC 005, which is a guide. But most of the IEEE documents are not stand, they're called standards, but they're not really, they're, they're guides or they're best practices. And uh, sometimes they're, they're not adopted, they're not recognized by the local electrical inspector, the local fire inspector. So, you know, we've got to be careful with the use of the word, I think the use of the word standard. I, th I can't think, there is one IEEE document which is a standard. And I'm not sure what's that one, George. It might be for the nuclear facilities. But all the rest are either just guides, like uh, our own favorite 1491 guide for uh, you know, technician training. It's not a standard, it's just a guide. So any comments on that? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I have been known to comment on the fact that some service companies tell us that they are doing their uh, battery maintenance accordance with the IEEE standard. And I point out that it's not actually a standard, it's simply a recommended practice. If you're looking at 450 or 1188 for our two favourite lead-acid batteries, this whole idea, but you still need some sort of agreement. So much of what we are doing today is involves software. And the software industry has grown up in a rather haphazard way, if we're really honest about it in that when they start talking about eventually getting standards for things like networking and all the rest of it, it's been a major fight for them because there's always been the big guys who tried to get their ideas in there and have that as the dominant one that's being used and purchased so that uh, they tend to dominate the market in it or at least get it to the way they want it. And there's lots of, you know, I think there's even more fighting in that side of the business than there is in ours. 
But uh, I, I see that starting to, I could see that starting to happen with our industry in the sense that people are trying to uh, start to dominate areas of it and uh, they want their idea in there first. But uh, would, I'm, I'm just not sure whether the right industry to do that with. But at the same time, there's no question about it. We do need to start to have at least standard protocols. How, you know, how do you interface with this? It was Andrew and I have both seen this in a big way with the uh, cybersecurity requirements. And you, you you commented, you said you thought that PRC 05 was only a guide. But it's, I agree with you. When you read it, it appears to be a guide, but it actually is a standard within the uh, within NERC. And it's, although it reads like a guide, it's that's the problem with it. It leaves so many areas open for interpretation and how to comply with it. You start talking about getting involved in anything to do with software or networking, you just can't have that flexibility if you're going to try and achieve the objectives. I remember in my days for working with uh, some standards for guides for Pixie, for instance, the defining word was, if it shall, you shall comply, uh, even though it might not be a standard recognized by law. But any smart lawyer will say, you know, you shall do this. And then the guy that, guys tend to use the word should. You should do this mm-hmm. or best practices. So that, that, that to me is the defining thing. I, I find that, that, as I said previously, the IEEE has been overburdened at the, at the moment. The IEEE Energy Storage and Stationary Battery Committee has been overburdened by some technologies that may not have made their way into the uh, you know, the stationary battery space. What, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree with you 100%. That this is, and part of that is, is that, the, that these new technologies are coming along and these companies want to promote them into the marketplace. And if you think about what our purpose of the stationary battery committee was, it was to provide initially either a guide or a recommended practice that people could use and it, and it would be accepted as a so the equivalent of a standard, effectively, if, if you complied with that, you're not going to get into trouble with it. You know, like when you and I were growing up, as long as you bought an IBM computer, you couldn't get in trouble. It was as simple as that. Not any longer, but that was that was the thought process back then. And that, and to me, this is one of the most important things that we've got to to look at and understand how some of this stuff can be introduced. What else needs to change? And how much is the industry going to change? I just I read an article this morning that, that hit me was that it was talking about data centers and how data centers are going to have to change because the actual the the level of power of the uh, basically the the hardware the the silicon that's been used for things like servers and routers and all the rest of it. That has been pretty, in its capabilities, it's been relatively stagnant for a number of years now. So there hasn't been a lot of other, you know, you could build a data center the same way as you built the last one almost because it would work. But with some of the newer silicon that's coming out there, it's going to draw a lot more power and going to be a lot smaller. As a result, they're going to have to look at what the power requirements are for the data centers and the the cooling. You know that we basically we up the uh, we up the operating temperatures, but within the the computer rooms, didn't we? And you and I worried about that because it it takes the uh, it takes the temperature of the room that the UPS may be located in much higher than you'd want the batteries to be operating in. But it's they're saying now it's going to change. So this is this is really what this conversation is all about: is how do we move forward? How do we start to recognize? those changes that are going to be required and what kind of uh, basis can we build it on because everything's changing so fast these days. We, we're just not going to, we don't have the three to five to 10 years to start developing a way to do it. You know, the 10 years, that last technology is out of date and uh, probably thrown in the, the scrap heap. So you mentioned change, George. I, I was just thinking about this the other day. There was a couple of landmark things, I, I think, in the backup power industry, stationary battery 
industry. And that includes chargers and UPSs. At one time, we had uh, utilities had their own conferences. Sometimes they still do. There was a New England battery conference uh, where the utilities all got together and decided this is the way we're going to do things. And then that started to wind down a little bit. And I think it was 24 years ago, BATCON came to fruition. And lo and behold, all the utility companies started to send representatives to BATCON. Here they were in a forum where, you know, there was telecom people and there was UPS people, there was data center people, IT people. And they found out, each found out that each segment of the industry did things a different way. And I think, uh, although, although I'm somewhat involved, but I think BATCOM was an industry changer in it showed the industry segments, hey, there are other ways of doing things. And then after that came along uh, at the same time, EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, uh, started doing a lot of work looking at new battery, new battery technologies. Well, the only new battery technology at the time was valve-regulated lead-acid batteries. But they did a massive study you know, concerning them. And out of that, you know, they, they, electric power and uh, EPRI, their customers, or the, their funders, were the utility industries. So here we have them doing research on a new battery technology, which the utility industries are still slow to adapt. And I'm going to bring Andrew in here in a minute to comment on that. And then we have the Uptime Institute uh, doing a lot of studies on reliability of uh, UPSs and batteries in the data space. So, you know, there's a lot more attention, being, in my mind, being paid for it, but paid to this problem over the last 10 or 20 years. So, uh, Andrew, I was going to ask you, uh, uh, I, I know you mentioned in the last broadcast that utility industries were starting slowly to adopt some of the new technologies. But do you see that with uh, any of your other any of your other folks you, you visit with? Yeah, absolutely. And more of our private customers, I think they're actually much further along in that kind of decision-making process. For example, I know, George, you mentioned a little bit about data centers earlier, and we're seeing actually a lot of clientele within that industry, within telecommunications industry, uh, adapting lithium already in various different formats of lithium, uh, both in uh, a relay rack configuration, but also a lot more are looking at uh, BSS systems, these large backup uh, energy storage systems, and utilizing lithium product for that, either a completely engineered large-scale setup or more smaller kind of put together in parallel type of systems. So I think that is really getting a lot more adoption. And we've also seen some of the, the repercussions, even with, uh, I believe, it was uh, PG&E on the West Coast had a large fire. Uh, I believe that was actually linked back to a BESS Tesla power pack system where they, from what I understand, had a, effectively just let it burn out. So there's um, a lot more training within the industry that has to come into play, uh, both training, you know, obviously the personnel engaging with these systems, but a lot of fire departments across the United States, even specific training for those guys. But that's just some of the adoption that we're seeing as far as battery systems go. Uh, there's wide adoption of, of battery monitoring and some of the other more modular scale equipment that uh, we go to market with, as well as services. So uh, I don't know if you want to jump in, George, and, and talk a little bit about the lithium and, and, and some of the different things that I've seen. Because even within our industry, like BATCON, I, that's become, from what I can see, more of a a talking point, especially from the services side of the industry and how do we maintain these safely? What is the, the maintenance of these systems and different things there? Yeah, you, you're right. That's that's probably one of the, the biggest challenges we have from the uh, the maintenance point of view uh, because we, we simply lack the, the technicians or, the, uh, or all those recommended practices on how maintenance should be done. A lot of the lithium batteries, uh, you know, they'll tell you, well, they don't need a battery monitoring system because they've got a battery management system that is an essential part 
of a lithium uh, battery assembly uh, to keep it from to attempt to keep it from catching fire because you've got to make sure you don't either over or undercharge it. But the point is that the the battery manufacturers themselves that build these systems they don't necessarily give you all the information that the service people want. That's a, it's a complaint I've had a number of times from some of the, uh, from one utility in particular that has adopted some lithium systems. And it's, you know, how, how do I get the information out and how do I use that from a maintenance point of view? There's also, I think, one of the biggest challenges we're going to have as we introduce the new battery technologies is, is to understand what the characteristics of them are. You know, I'm involved at the present moment in looking at, uh, you know, basically modern zinc-based batteries. That's one of the uh, guys that we're working on at the present moment. And we've got basically two two key elements, two units there. We've got um, nickel zinc and zinc manganese. Now, you think, well, they're, they're actually the same. They both got zinc in them. They, they probably behave the same way. No, they don't. The nickel zinc loves to be discharged at a very, very high rate. It's commercial, so it's ideal for something like a UPS system battery. It works great under these applications, but the nickel manganese or the zinc manganese one prefers a much slower discharge. You're looking at two different, totally different aspects, you know, but they're getting classed under zinc-based batteries, even within the way we're doing it. It's in, it's in it, but what part of what we're trying to achieve is to be able to explain all this so that when somebody looks at our guide, at least they'll be able to understand that, no, I don't want that one, I want this one, you know, that type of thing. But the, it's, it comes back to is how do we, how do we integrate them into the, the network? How do we train people on them? Well, because one of the guys, Alan said, you know, he, he says IEEE is overloaded. I totally agree with him. Because one of the reasons it's overloaded is that we don't have anywhere near the number of members or active members that we used to have. You know, we um, COVID really put a damper on it. But I've been to the uh, the last two post-COVID ones, and the attendance level was way down. As a result, it cost us individually more money to attend it in order to cover the cost of the hotel and all the rest. But companies are simply just not supporting the people. And even when we try to do monthly meetings, the challenge of, of finding you know, some time that all of us can attend or try to attend at least. I, I got one next week when um, I'm supposed to be there from 11 to 12, but I have another meeting with Alan and the marketing department at 11.30. So basically I get to attend the IEEE for the first 30 minutes and then I have to go over to another meeting. And I don't think I'm unique in that respect. We haven't managed to get a full quorum at any of our online meetings officially. We do work, but are we a quorum to approve it? No. So this is this is all part of what I see as the problem. It's a lack of people and it's a lack of knowledgeable people to be able to work on these things. Because it seems to be as the more knowledgeable you are, the less the company allows you want to be involved in that type of thing, which is crazy. That's kind of a segue to something I was going to mention, George, next, uh, try and change the conversation a little bit. That's reliability. With all the advances in technology, uh, all the advances in system, the hardware reliability, there's, according to the, the latest, uh, I think it was the uptime, statistics that uh, particularly in data centers that the power of, that the outages the failures are increasing so maybe that's due to lack of knowledge of uh, the people that are operating or maintaining them but uh, also they uh, they say that I forget the figures they say 60 percent of the power outages or of the system failures were, were due to power out power problems or battery-related problems. So you, you hit the you, you're in the right track when you said your lack of training, lack of knowledgeable personnel, and I, I'd like to see what Andrew has to comment about that. What what he sees out on the coal face there. Well, you guys are, are kind of nailing the lack of training because 
even earlier, you guys brought up some good points that I think there's just an absolute ton of confusion is the difference between a standard, a recommended practice, and how that an application ties back into FERC and some of these different actual fines that can come out of some of these non-compliance aspects. And I think even myself, it, I find that even being in the industry, there is there is somewhat confusion between behavioral changes that need to take place, what all of those guides actually mean when it comes to customers and what they need to be doing and how they need to be doing to, one, avoid fines. Because that's number one, right? We, Everything about NERC PRC005 is what I like to say, that's the bare bones minimum of what a customer is expected to do on a DC battery system. And often customers struggle to do just that, that very exact bare minimum. In my mind, NERC PRC005 isn't the gold standard of what a battery management or a maintenance program could be. It is the absolute bare minimum of what a critical facility should be doing. So even if you guys would be open to it, I'd like to just go back and kind of explore the differences between the, the actual standard, a recommended practice, and what those both mean when it comes to kind of the legal ramifications behind those. Well, then, really, uh, if it's a guide or a a best practice, it doesn't really have the force of law, although any smart lawyer will, well, if, if there's a problem or if there's an accident or a fire, smart lawyer will say, well, you know, here's a guide that tells you what you should do, and you didn't do it. But uh, most of the IEEE standards, and I think I, I, I wrote a technical note way back, and maybe I'll resurface it again, is the, you know, the difference between, you know, standards, guides, practices um, and, 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 and what the bearings are. But uh, I, I don't know if that answers your question, Andrew. For me, if, if I was a manager of a facility, uh, whether it was telecom or utility or whatever, I would require that our techni the technicians, that they adhere to IEEE standards for the very basic fact that they're the best thing out there. There's really nothing else. You know, there's manufacturer's guides, there's uh, some other stuff. Uh, you know, that you mentioned PRC 005, and George will probably talk about TPL. Uh, but they all basically rely on the work already been done by the IEEE and IEEE standards. So, so if I have a vented lead acid battery plant, I'd want that to be maintained in accordance with IEEE 450. And if I had a VRLA battery plant, I'd, I'd want it to be maintained in accordance with IEEE 1188. The main complaint I hear about IEEE standards is that they're too strict. And I got to agree there some, somewhere or other, because if you look at, say, 1188, uh, which is a guide for the maintenance of vented lead acid, uh, valve regulated lead acid batteries, it, it has monthly, quarterly, semi-annual, annual inspections. Well, if you have, if you're an owner of a smaller battery plant, and I say it's remote, you're not going to send somebody there every month. You might even send, might not even send somebody there every quarter. But if you have a, in this case, I would require that they put a monitor on the system. A, a monitor is another set of wheels, really. You know, and so you're going to avoid unnecessary call-outs, but you also when you are called out or when there's a problem, the chances are you will have the right equipment in your truck before you, you even go to the site. You'll have the right equipment there to, to fix the problem. So, you know, having said that, they maybe the, some of the IEEE stuff is a little bit uh, overbearing or, or too requires too much work. But at the same time, you know, you can adopt those stuff. You, you can modify those standards. And I've done that several times for various companies I've worked with, but uh, that was on the basis of having, usually of having a monitor on the system. So George, would you like to comment? I'll comment. You, you know, you said that the standard doesn't carry any legal basis, but interesting enough, the present moment, as you know, we are redoing 
1491, which is the which is the guide to battery monitoring that you started all these years ago, uh, and it's going to become a recommended practice. And the reason it's becoming a recommended practice is actually at the request of the utilities, because the utilities themselves want something that they can use to be able to show that they will comply with the requirements within PRC 005 if they go over to monitoring. And it's, it's and, and part of the reason for this is this, I think, is sometimes that maybe not everybody understands the whole history that behind now energy storage and stationary battery, but the original stationary battery and 450 out of the very original recommended practice that, we, that was produced is that was produced at the behest of the nuclear industry so that there was some form of standardised maintenance for the batteries at all our nuclear plants. And as you know, well, because you know that, or you used to know the two young ladies that came, that at every meeting where we have, we have two people, representatives from the Nuclear Regulatory Committee, the meeting to make sure that we don't dilute 450 in any way, shape or form, so that it doesn't protect what they, they see as required. So, yeah, it, it, that's the reason why the recommended practices are there. Though they're not carried out by law, but in, in a sense, they're very similar to something like NFPA 70E, which, as you know, is the uh, National Fire Protection Association. It's basically the guide to safety it, on, on the maintenance side of it, too. covers arc flash and all the rest of it. Now it covers DC power systems, all the safety precautions required. And that was actually developed at the behest of OSHA because the OSHA standards, as they call them, are so like some of the stuff in PRC 05. They allow so much flexibility. And the whole idea of NFPA 70E is that if you comply with it, what it says in 70E, OSHA can't really come and chase you for something if there's an accident because you've been complying with what is their acceptance of a guide to what's, what you need to do. And that's what it's all about. It's trying to really protect people and protect everything else. Yeah, the, the, problem with, the problem with OSHA, George, I find out is uh, OSHA tells you what to do, but they don't tell you how to do it. So mm-hmm. you know, that, that's, that was the basis of NFPA. You're right, NFPA 70E. But uh, I'd like to ask Andrew, is, is there anything else he's, saying out there with his customers that it, it, there's a void or there's you know, a hole that needs to be filled? What do you think, Andrew? Well, I think that there is a void, uh, but I can tell you that it's already being filled and it's being filled by private consultants. And I think what that is, is the project planning and oversight of uh, new builds and engineering and design. A lot of utilities that I'm interacting with, whenever we do go down a path, whether it be battery monitoring or some other project that we're working directly with them on, I'm seeing more nowadays that there is an engineering firm representative or represent representatives multiple on those calls. And it, it seems like a lot of our utility customers uh, from their engineering end are are becoming more so of a of a project manager rather than an in a full-on full-fledged engineering design um, and a lot of where it comes with equipment selection kind of vetting and different aspects of that part of the business are going into private hands and private consultants um, there's a lot of large firms but even there's often local smaller ones so if anything, I think it's a manned resources aspect and potentially a talent pool issue when it comes to the utilities themselves bringing in engineering that can keep a lot of that work in house. And it also may be a time and cost choice that they're making from their end to sub a lot of that full on design out. You're right. And I'm saying it, but the thing that bothers me is that. You know, some of these consultants, they may be highly qualified, but a lot of the times they have no clue as to the battery backup industry. I've even seen specifications being written by consultants that just don't make sense. Or they're, they're, they're looking for a lead acid battery, but they send you a specification based on a 
invented lead-acid battery. So I know George and I both taught classes where, maybe George more than myself, but where the classes have been full of uh, PEs, professional engineers, and that the lack of knowledge, these are highly, highly qualified people that I know what they go through, but the lack of knowledge about the industry is abysmal. So maybe George can comment on that. Oh, yeah, it's true. I've done a number of, the first one I did, I remember walking into the uh, the conference hall where it was being held, and there was 120 PEs sitting in front of me. And I'm going, what the hell am I doing here? You know, but um, you know, you're, you're exactly right. Their lack of knowledge on batteries was very, very low. I got an even better example was I, I did a training at a, uh, a generating plant up uh, north of uh, Milwaukee. Uh, one Andrew knows quite well. And I, I did two sets of training in there. And in one of the, the training sessions, I had a, uh, there was a young engineer in the front seat. And he asked a lot of very intelligent questions and uh, really was interested in it. And we, at the end of the course, when we were all packing up, I said to him, do you feel you, you know, was it a worthwhile course? He said, George, he said, you taught me more in two days than I got out of a full semester in college on batteries. Now, I find that, you know, you know, I like to think of it as a compliment to my teaching, but the other point is, it's a little bit frightening that, it, you know, a professor didn't cover as much as I had over a full semester. So, so in a sense... They're coming out of college with a degree, but they don't actually have the knowledge. And that, that was summed up when we were, I had a conversation, I was at a conference uh, earlier this year, and uh, we were talking about the uh, this whole challenge of understanding the SIP regulations that are applicable now within the utilities. And I commented that we were receiving these different questionnaires that were coming out of consultants that were uh, supposed to be handling the, uh, the the SIP requirements and and guiding the particular utility towards it. And I, I made the comment that some of the stuff I was being asked was was actually crazy because it wasn't applicable to, to my understanding of the business. And uh, the comment they made back to me was, you're absolutely right, because a lot of these people that are producing these questionnaires, they know the theory behind it, but they have absolutely no understanding of how the utilities operate. And I think that's that's what we're talking about here. We have maybe a high level of engineering expertise and maybe a lot of in-depth knowledge of certain things, but it doesn't apply in the different industries, and each industry is different. As you, you've made the point earlier, on, uh, Alan, about this, the fact that you come to BACCON and people suddenly discover that utilities do it one way, telecom do it another. And the data centers are looking and saying, what the hell are you guys talking about DC? You know, it should be AC. And we lived through that with one of the companies we worked for at one point. But, you know, it, it's there's just that lack of understanding. And, and how can one, how do we as one company work to develop all the skills we require to be able to work in all these different applications? Because that's what people look to us for, which is why we try to focus on education. Yeah, we, we, we miss the old-fashioned uh, DC power engineers or or even the old-fashioned UPS guys mm -hmm. uh, who really understood their, you know, the subject and they went on to be sometimes sales engineers, system engineers, and, uh, you know, there was that great knowledge there. But due to attrition, uh, due to financial engineering, as I call it, and, and due to, you know, changing times, computerization of a lot of stuff. You know, we've, we've lost those people and, and they're not coming back. So, you know, that's the sad part of, of, of the industry. If I had a young uh, engineer, young technician, I'd tell them to learn as much as you ca possibly can about batteries, about rectifiers, about inverters, about, you know, UPS systems, because there's not a lot of people out there uh, outside the design labs that fully understand this and uh, you know, they'll, they'll always have a job. So what do, what do you think, Andrew? Well, I, I also think, you know, George, some of what that is, is uh, batteries are a static device in my eyes for the most part, you know, there's a lot of other equipment 
that are that is out there in the field, such as like a UPS system, like you mentioned, at a data center, where inherently built in with the system is is the capability for it to give off alarms to advance, let people know, hey, there's something wrong with me, come fix me. Whereas with batteries in general, they're relatively self-contained. Um, a lot of customers that that when we start conversations with them and you get a feel for what they've actually done with the batteries, the most data that they've ever gotten from the batteries is maybe a, a voltage meter done on the batteries you know, annually um, or whatever their charger has told them over the past 20 years about the system, which is just effectively a float system voltage. So when you introduce something like a third-party device, such as a battery monitoring system, and, and now your batteries are actually in that sequence of equipment that is saying, hey, there's something wrong with me, come repair me, then it kind of leads to everything that what we do as a company from then on out is, hey, what is my, I just realized that I don't know anything about batteries or know very, very little about batteries, even all the way up to an engineering firm. You know, a lot of what, how they're interacting with some of this equipment is strictly based on what they see in a line diagram on a large building structure, right? Where it's just a piece or a component of it. So I, I think batteries just themselves have kind of lend themselves to put in this situation of a, a general lack of understanding often, whether it's in a university classroom or whether it's uh, in the field training by you know the battery SME. Often it's kind of their own doing in the sense that you need to actually purchase a third-party device to really be able to get the information out of the battery. It doesn't willingly give you that information right off of the shelf. Um, outside of, I will say, a lithium battery, they do come kind of with that built in, you know, because there's there's specific reasons for that, not because it's really forward-facing. It, it's mainly because it needs cell balancing, but it does give you information right off the get-go. And I think a lot of customers... That's why they are liking that type of equipment, because it is becoming this active piece of equipment right away when they install it that says, hey, this is going on with me. Come fix me. Come do this so where they can make an actionable item. I understand what you're saying, and, and you're right. But as I said, one of the problems is that the, the way the data is presented, it doesn't help them understand what's going on. It, will tell, it tells them when there's something wrong and you've got to, you know, Oh, by the way, I've taken this battery pack out of service because it was too high voltage, or I've taken it out of service, and all of a sudden you're running around trying to replace it. Because, you know, but there's no advance warning of a problem. But there probably is if you look at the data, but there's not that analysis developed yet to do it. But I'm going to come back to a comment Alan made earlier when he was talking about the various studies that have been done about where these failure mechanisms are. And it's interesting that the, the Uptime Institute, who do a lot of these studies, uh, they actually went back and uh, looked at all the failure mechanisms over about 25 years that they've been doing this type of study. And they've come to the conclusion that something like two-thirds of them actually had an element of human error as part of it. And it was, it was you know, they're saying that a lot of times that human error even occurred when they were supposed to be doing a standard procedure, like a shutdown procedure or, or something like that. This was something that was laid out, documented. All you had to do was follow the instructions. And the insinuation within when you read the actual report was that the technicians weren't caring. They weren't doing the job properly, you know, that type of thing. Well, come on, Alan, you and I have been service techs as well for a lot of our career doing the work. I take offense at that. Because I don't think I ever was never in the position of not doing everything absolutely right. But what, the, I, what my theory upon this is, is that this is, it isn't that these guys weren't trying to follow it, but they've only ever been shown how to do it on a 100% serviceable piece of equipment. If you're suddenly being asked to do something and something goes wrong, and you don't actually understand how the equipment works or anything else, you're not in a position to take corrective action because you still got your instruction and it said that you should turn this switch next. But, you know, you've got a row of lead light, lights, lights in front of you and, uh, you know, the switch won't turn because 
in fact, the battery has failed before you ever got to the next stage of the uh, the procedure. So I think there's, there's, that's where the, the training and the understanding about how do you actually, how do we improve this reliability? We can, we, we can always, you can always have it, but things go wrong. That's, that's just the world. It doesn't matter how well you do anything. And you're looking at the expert at that, don't you? Murphy's followed me around all my damn life. I've got away with most of it, but it's because I knew what to do when it, when it came to it. What was that, George, Ron? <laughs> anyway, you hit on something else as well, and that's understanding the data. You know, you can test everything and monitor the heck out of everything, but unless you have a somebody who can look at that data and, and analyze it, you're kind of wasting your time a little bit. So, you know, I think we've lost that expertise as, as well in a lot of cases. You, people install monitors and then they dump the data from it, and that's a, the last is goes into file 13 or something like that. So what's your thoughts on that, Andrew and, and George? You guys are pretty much nailing, nailing it on the head here. You know, the, the training and the, the understanding is something that we're seeing quite a lot more. And, and George, you can even elaborate a little bit on, on the training course. But one thing that we've noticed, even with some of our large scale clients, when it comes to battery monitoring is, especially with like our legacy systems, right? We've done a what I believe to be a tremendous job with our vigilance system, with a lot of the data interpretation that it's actually doing for clients to try to help ease some of that burden. But some of the legacy battery monitoring systems that are out there in the field, by other brands, even by some of our, our older systems, is, is a tremendous data dump on the clients. And, and we've seen that kind of paralysis, so to speak, actually come into play because you take a customer that was historically doing manual information. It was very limited on what they were actually interpreting. And then you give them data interpretation capabilities and you start to realize that, hey, what they really need is fundamental understanding of how to take the information and quickly make decisions as an organization from a managerial and executive level all the way down to that technician. Any technician, George, you were mentioning a little bit there about not knowing what to do when, when things go bad and, and how to troubleshoot in the field. Also handling a dangerous system, right? a battery DC system can be very dangerous if you do not know how to properly handle it in the field. So some of the training that we do covers it, but some of the more advanced training that we're now starting to teach that I'm really excited for is things that we're doing for battery monitoring customers and, and kind of training on that. George, if you want to kind of elaborate a little bit on kind of the thought process behind that kind that kind of training and why it's necessary. Well, I thank you, Andrew, for giving me a chance to talk about it because that's this is what I'm working on right at the present moment. We have a, we we've been for the last year and a half now doing a major. Uh, installation for one of the larger utilities. We're covering a, a large area, quite a large area of their, their service area, installing the monitors. And what you start to realize is that the uh, in, in this case, obviously the whole idea was the how, how do we use monitoring to allow compliance with 005? So they started talking to people. We were one of the companies they talked to. They decided they liked our vigilant monitor the most. So the the project team went ahead, they got the budgeting permission, and they've been moving ahead now and installing it all. But as one of the project managers suddenly realized was that when we got it installed, somebody else in the company is going to have to run it. And most of that person is going to be regional middle managers, people that are running service crews that are responsible for their own level of uh, what, what how they achieve, what we got to do, and all the rest of it. and. Uh, so I got told they wanted a training course, and that's the one I've been working on. And when I when I started to put it together, I suddenly realized that you actually have to start at the very beginning. Because in this case, because it's a utility and PRC005 and TPL001-5 are all part of the, the NERC requirements, most of these managers, even at the managerial level, don't understand the basis of it. So this course is the one Andrew's talking about, and we're talking back and forward because he's he's giving me ideas as well. Is basically the idea is you start at the very beginning, 
What are the requirements of 005? How do you how would you comply with them if you followed it in a manual process? What's all what's part of it? There's things in there about you have to analyze the data. But most people don't put that into the, their actual service plans, although they should. And we are, so we finally get to we, we learn then what a battery monitor is. What is 1491? What's all the what's all the information in 1491 about the parameters we measure? Then we go into how can a battery monitor handle that? Then it's, yeah, okay, what about the vigilant? And then we're going to talk, we do the vigilant, and then we're going to have them actually sit there and play with the vigilant on their laptops in the classroom. And then the final thing we're going to talk about is how do we implement the uh, SIP requirements with respect to a battery monitor? Because one of the, one of the challenges we have is that, as you well know, Alan, the, up to now, the battery monitor has always been this standalone item that's nothing to do with anything else. Most times, all we ever, ever see when they talk about using uh, building management systems, then the only thing they ever take is the alarms. They don't actually take the data and do any further analysis, in part because of the cost that the people that are doing the building management systems charge to add that data in. But we're, we're, you know, we're now looking at it that the battery monitor, in fact, if you're going to comply with SIP and meet all these requirements and the reliability requirements, the battery monitor has simply got to become a very intelligent data collector that not only collects the data, but then does a, a level of analysis to it as much as, at least to give the first line troops an idea of what's going on. And then you still will have at some point to have to look at the data and try to analyze it further. But you, 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 it's no longer going to be a standalone thing. It's simply going to be another set of data that they have to understand in order to achieve the best use of the smart grid. So it's, it's an interesting time, but it's a totally different way of thinking about how to do training even. And Anders, we were talking about it the other day, and as he said, you know, he, he's almost at the point of there. Every every customer we talk about to about battery monitoring, perhaps you should come and do the course first before they even get started. And because a lot of that too, George, is uh, there's a behavioral mindset that has to change within the organization as well, and that needs to be kind of shared from the top down to the all the way down to the technician of. Hey, if we're no longer sending guys out to sites, we're still going to be sending them out on occasion to those facilities. But how are they engaging and interacting with that equipment? Uh, what is changing in, in the way that they do their actual duties? And then if there's changes between what they're doing and some of the data interpretation responsibilities within the organization, where are those shifts going? Usually it's on to um, uh, an engineer that has a you know training, like you said, over at Eagle Eye University or some other type of training where they can go and, and properly understand, okay, now we're getting this input from the actual battery monitoring device. Now for us, our responsibility is looking at that data, then making a decision as an organization, okay, do we need to do a load capacity test on that system? Do we need to put that system in our operating replacement budget? maybe in our CapEx budget over the next two years, but helps us along the way of making proactive decisions on what to do with that. So getting the training and the different aspects that you said, we're seeing more and more so is just vital to really being able to make those decisions and then move away from having a lot of data available and not knowing what to do with it or how to actually make a decision, right? One of the, this, Alan will uh, thank me for saying this because he's the absolute proponent of it, that the one thing that the battery monitor cannot do is a visual inspection. And a visual inspection is absolutely key part of any battery management program because there are there's stuff that is visible that is telling you a lot of information about what's happening to that battery. But if you don't actually go and look at it, and, and this is one of the, the Whereas I find a problem with the concept of, well, the technician collects the data, they don't understand it, but they send it off to a subject matter expert to analyze. But the point is, it's the technician that's also stood in front of the battery and seen the leaking post seal or the, or the cracked top of the cell, you know, that is not there, that the other person's not seeing. And I've, I've, I've had, I keep telling people that the crazy idea is that we should actually have plastic drones 
that you can remotely fly up and down the battery. And people look at me and think I'm crazy because you just want to play with a drone is the normal comment that's made. But you know something? It's maybe not as stupid as it seems. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the visual inspection, George, because uh, Eagle Eye does have a lot of information. I think we did a podcast. Uh, no, I think we did a webinar or something like that uh, way, way back. We might resurrect that again. But uh, I know we're going to have to wind up shortly. But one thing we didn't talk about is is load testing. Uh, load testing to me is very, very important. It's the only way you're really going to know the condition of that battery. But load testing has got sophisticated as well. We're getting a lot more data points when we do a load test. But, you know, it will tell us a lot more about that battery than a, the old-fashioned, you know, throw a, a load bank on it and see if a battery will run for whatever the specified time was. So people need to pay a lot more attention. Uh, I know it's expensive, but need to pay a lot more attention to load testing because, as I say, it's the only way you're going to really know how that battery performs. And even then, there's, even then there's a drawback because you don't know what, what's going to happen to the battery upon recharge. But anyway, that's, that's, that's another story. Andrew, are, are, people, are people looking at load testing? Yeah, I can't say that it is in a, it's in an interesting spot because, like you said, um, one thought of getting battery monitoring, right, is, hey, does this mean that we no longer have to do load testing? And my comment often is, no, but when is the last time that you actually did load testing? Oh, we haven't. We were just thinking about if, if in the future we invested in this, would we not continue to not have to do that? And I like to look at the battery monitoring system as uh, another one of those data points for getting information on when you really should actively do a load test. There may be times in between when the recommended time to do it is based on the data from from the actual battery monitoring system. It might be indicating to us based on everything that it's feeding back is, hey, we have a potential issue with this string. We need to make a determination. I still think one of the truest ways to do that is to do a load test on the system. So I always recommend whether you're you're coming to us for battery monitoring or not, load testing is a critical aspect of what you need to do as from a maintenance maintenance perspective whether you feel comfortable doing it yourself and investing in a, a load tester and getting training for it or hiring the service out, I think it is something that really should be mandatory. George, final word here. Right. Well, I, I'm going to just pass something back here. And this is one of the problems with load testing, Alan. And this is what I found out is that load testing, and it's, in, it's included in some of the other classes. But the point is that the customers do not want to do they, they, don't, they simply don't want to do the load testing as per the IEEE recommended practice. They might have a, an eight-hour battery, but they want to do it for two hours at a much higher rate. And when you try to explain to them about the loss of efficiency at higher rates of discharge on that particular battery, that you're not going to get an accurate picture from a two-hour discharge, no matter what rate you're discharging it at. It's totally, it can be totally misleading. But that's that's where some of the other challenges come into it. And I think that's probably it sums up the uh, our whole conversation. But I think this was a worthwhile extension to our last podcast, definitely. Alan, anything else? Or, we, or do we have to go to part three of the of this uh, episode? No, I, 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 I don't think so. I think we, what I think I will do is uh, resurrect the, uh, the piece I did on codes and standards and uh, practices, you know, the differences, and also probably do something on the uh, various IEEE documents. Uh, a lot of people don't even know, you know, as Andrew knows, they, they don't even realize there is a standard for a particular type of battery. So maybe I'll do something on that as well. Sounds good. Alan, thanks as always for providing us with a wealth of information for our website. So if anyone has any questions, please feel free to take a look there. So thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Andrew, for joining us. Uh, George and Alan, always appreciate it. You guys go have a great day and we'll, we'll catch you the next time around. Thanks. 
We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.